This is the Living Fearless Today podcast, a show that helps men like you and me who are struggling to get unstuck and overcome fear to live confidently and courageously. I'm your host and transformation coach, Mike Forrester, helping you create the change you want now. Join me as I interview men who've conquered their challenges and soared to success as they spill their secrets on how they live fearless today. Well, hello and welcome back, my friend. And today we've got John Henry Parker, who he's a veteran from, uh, well, I guess it, once a Marine, always a Marine, right? So That's he true. is a, a, a Marine veteran and uh, author. I mean, just John's got a great book coming out and you know, come to find out he's all that's his second book. So his first book, I'm really excited to, to also delve into, which was an audio book, right? John Henry. Yeah. And uh, we can touch more into that, but it was talking about like the critical mind and, and your logical mind and how they can have a conversation, which I'm pretty sure most of us are familiar with, but uh, yeah, just so thankful. John Henry, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm great, man. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. I've been, I've been listening to some of your podcasts just so I can understand, you know, a little more about where you're coming from and uh, real relatable. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. We had some great conversations leading up to this and, so excited to to dive in deeper here. Um, why don't we start out with what does life look like for you today on the personal side? Well, I'm happily married. Um, I have um, I have a pretty pretty calm existence compared to my upbringing and compared to my most of my adult life. Um, and uh, I'm happy with who I am and who I'm becoming and. And I really get a lot of value, a lot of meaning and purpose from the work that I do with with veterans and their families, but also writing. I found the therapeutic writing turned into a real passion for me. And so I spent a lot of my time, you know, getting things expressed through the written word. Now that's super valuable. And you're doing some great stuff. I mean, you talked about working with not only veterans, but also with uh, children that have cancer. I mean, you've, you have a huge heart and, you know, it's not been just like, Hey, I'm coming from a silver spoon. I mean, we'll get into some of your experiences, what you've gone through, but, um, I would imagine some of that comes from the appreciation of what you've gone through. Is that accurate? Yeah. And it's also about having just a couple of significant matriarchs in our family that are really, really well educated really really just wonderful wonderfully balanced you know um being there and and helping to shape my understanding of you know the world around me and kind of pr provisioning me for the hero's journey ahead very precisely <laughs> gotcha well, what does life look like for you today on the professional side as far as work well i'm a behavioral assessment analyst I've been doing that for 35 years and um, just really curious about myself, first of all, how and why I do what I do, and, um, understanding my own behavior, my own triggers, my own, you know, history, 
and my own stories, my own belief systems. And um, I'm semi-retired from from that, but I've I've done that for 35 years inside of companies with CEOs and executives and and then with vets, veterans applying the same exact process of self-discovery. And uh and that's so that's what I mean. I write a lot because and I record, I've recorded an audiobook and and I'm really focused on this transformational development work that got my attention a long time ago. So as far as like when you're talking about self-discovery, what do you see for like men, veterans, I guess like just people in general? Like what is that the revelation from that self, you know, like you're researching yourself? Like how does that pay off and and help? Well, it started for me 35 years ago. I took a little communication survey that's about, you know, 50 adjectives and you checked off which one applied. And uh, it was really well-researched, pretty valid survey. And immediately, within a few minutes, I, I received some feedback from somebody who who, who defined my, my biggest presenting problem that I did not even know how to articulate. He said that my need to control conflicts with my, with my need to not be controlled. And I'm like, can you say that again? And, uh, and you know, my need for, to accomplish objectives, to be in control, was in opposition to my need for freedom and autonomy and to not be told what to do and not be controlled. You know, and if you really want to get that dished up to you, go in the military, especially the Marine Corps. If you have a problem with authority, you don't like to be controlled, you're going to have a steady stream of disciplinary problems, especially if you drink a lot of beer and alcohol. Right. And so um, so for me, it started with that little survey. And I, I thought, you know, I don't want to just learn this. I want to master this. I really saw it as a way to help understand myself for the first time. I didn't have a formal education. You know, um, but personal development was my passion. You know, and more to answering your question, um, my, my I have a great aunt that I'll talk to you about during our conversation here, mm-hmm. and she said her name is Glad Gladys, and she said, uh, "Pay attention to the messengers that you meet by chance because they're often the ones who are here to teach you the most." Mm-hmm. So she's like, "If you get a flat tire." Just relax. Be curious. You're probably going to bump into somebody really interesting. You know, so I was raised with this innate curiosity. And one such messenger was uh, a warrant officer in Okinawa, Japan, two weeks before I got in the Marine Corps. And uh, I'd never really read a book cover to cover. I was a terrible student. Didn't have any concentration. Fell asleep in band class because I couldn't read very much. You know, I didn't couldn't do math. You know, and so I really struggled, but he, we struck up a conversation and he said, you know, can I give you some advice? And I'm like, absolutely. And he said, well, you're going to get out in the Marine Corps in a couple of weeks and you're going to realize real quick that the world doesn't need another hard ass Marine who can parachute out of helicopters at night and carry big, heavy packs. I don't really care about that, but you're going to get out and you're going to look at the job listings out there. And you're going to be looking at what your life's prepared you for. 
And you can either be a cop or you can be a, a prison guard. You can be a, para, a parachuting fireman. But, you know, if I were you, I'd go to the closest bookstore. I'd go to the self-help section, not the psychology section. And I'd look at every book spine and I'd find anything that jumps off the shelf at me. And I start reading about who I'm becoming. And this conversation only lasted maybe five or 10 minutes. I said, goodbye. Thank you very much. I never saw him again. And I spent the last 35 years paying that conversation forward like thousands of times, turning people on to the power of personal development and transformational development, because that five minute conversation literally launched me into a whole new trajectory because I'd never even heard of self-help. So I went and I picked up Think and Grow Rich okay, by Napoleon Hill. That title sounded great. Um, the Magic of Thinking Big by Schwartz. That was a great title, right? And then Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz, who was a plastic surgeon who made people beautiful, but they couldn't see it. And that was kind of me in my Marine Corps uniform. I looked impeccable, but I call it internal cohesion. The, the image that I presented to the outside world didn't at all match up with my self-worth. So I thought that was really interesting about how impeccable we can look, but how damaged and, you know, hurting we could be inside. You find that to be pretty common that people look good, but don't think or believe good? For the most part, but rarely you meet people like I joke, my my wife, I, I say, I tell everybody she has an extra happy gene. Like she's just constantly waking up and going to bed just in a, in a really positive place. You know, like her critical mind, the back of her head is like superwoman telling her she can do anything. Right. I wish I had that growing up, you know. And so, yeah, you meet a lot of you meet some people that are pretty rare that have it wired up. And it's probably because of their parenting, how they were raised, where they were raised, you know. She has a lot of adversity, but it's not like upbringing adversity. Hmm. So when you're talking like the critical mind, uh, I mentioned that earlier, the critical and logical mind. Can you describe what the two are and like the roles that they can play? Yeah. After working with veterans for 25 years, I created a, a pretty good compendium of knowledge and awareness about like why they can't ask for help. We can talk about that. But uh, people who have suffered from trauma, there's a, a the, in the back of our mind is a critical mind that is robbing us constantly from being present with our families and our children. And the moments where we really need to be here, we're checked out somewhere else because we're getting triggered. And uh, my experience is that the critic, including myself, is Part of me took over when I was scared to death as a kid and I didn't know what to do. Something took over and it got me out of, out of those bad situations. And, um, and it got confused. It, it, it thinks I work for it instead of the other way around. Right. It wakes me up in the middle of the night. It's alarming me about disaster, pending doom. What's wrong with this picture? Uh, and so the critical mind is a part of ourselves that is, it's necessary, but it's overblown. And it's actually not the whole of us. It's a part of us. It's not who we are, but there's a part of me that carried such a, a significant, catastrophic amount of complex and compounded trauma 
that that part of me was taking up a lot of space. So the critical mind, and the way I would define it is, is it's different than our rational, reasonable mind. Like I'm talking to you right now with my rational, reasonable mind. Mm-hmm. But if we get triggered all of a sudden, it can take over. So, so I wrote a book about this and I recorded, I narrated an audio book called Transitioning Veterans, how, how we get in our own way and what to do about it. And a big part of the book is about how to self-regulate. And there's a three-step process that I developed for myself that really seemed just magical, which was number one, recognize that I'm triggered. Simple as that sounds, you know, that what you are, what you are observing, you are no longer. So if you observe you're being triggered and you're in a full-blown episode, the instant you notice that you're noticing, you pop out into an observation post like you're sitting in a movie theater watching it up on the screen instead of being inside the experience. Mm -hmm. So when I learned how to recognize I was triggered and even declare it to my wife or whoever, like, hey, I'm really triggered, or say to myself, man, I'm triggered, instantly I had more resources. Like my vision, my experience would go from full blown panoramic full color to triggered which would be like laser focused and black and white like hyper focused and then i noticed that i wasn't breathing i was hyper i just like this hyper awareness had my breathing constricted because i was so focused so then i learned some breathing techniques called square breathing in the military they call it tactical breathing where you breathe in through your nose and, and out through your nose but you breathe in for five hold for five out for five, hold for five, and you repeat that process. And you can feel your 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 heartbeat, heartbeat kind of slowing down. Okay. And then the third step is focus on something more interesting. And so in the audiobook, this guy Yonel, who plays the voice of the critical mind. So you have two people narrating this book. I'm the rational, reasonable mind. He's the voice of the hijacked critical mind. And my critical mind happens to be a really tough New Yorker or people from guy from Boston. Cause I used to hang out with really tough guys when I was in the Marines. I just loved them. And we got in a lot of trouble together. So that's the voice of my critical mind. So I found a voice actor from Brooklyn uh, who's just awesome. His name is Yonel Dorellis. And he plays the, that, that critical voice. And so, um, so Yonel is actually a, combat rescue helicopter pilot in I think three of the four branches or three of the five branches. So he was going through his own transition when I found him. And this book really was fun and interesting because what I'm getting at is like, I'm talking to Yonel about breathing. He's like, what do you mean breathing? That's for people who do yoga and stuff like that. You know? And, I, and so we, we go through this. He's really cynical. He's skeptical, my critical mind. And so we recognize that he's triggered. You do some breathing. And then like I asked him, were you present when your daughter was born? He said, yeah. So, well, do you remember when you first noticed that she was staring back up at you and you were looking in her eyes? And he's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that that was a moment. Right? And you can just feel this transformation in him, in his being. And after we talked about it for a little bit, your, your thoughts create the emotions that you experience and your emotions create the chemical soup that your body generates. That's like Joe Dispenza and Bruce Lipton, you know, so they're so so by helping him transform in a nanosecond, we're able to come back and did you notice it? Did you see what just happened? And in that moment, he realizes I can notice that I'm triggered. 
I can breathe and I can focus on my daughter. And he had a transformation for real, not just recording the audiobook. So that's a bit about the critical mind. It's always waiting to hijack the precious moments when we're out with people that we care about, but we're focused somewhere else. Now, is it more of like trying to protect us? So we've gone through experiences before in our life and it's built off of those experiences, the beliefs that come from them. And it's more of like danger, danger, warning, and kind of more of fear based, so to speak. And that's one version of it. There's other versions that are like, you can't do it. Who do you think you are? So there's a lot of self-doubt, self-loathing, right? There was a lot of that for me growing up, which was, there must be something wrong with me. That was my prevailing belief in life until it wasn't. Because otherwise, why would this stuff happen to me? Why did my dad do this? Why did my neighborhood do that? There must be something wrong with me. So there's lots of different flavors of the critical mind. And if anybody's listening, they know what I'm talking about. They've got their own version of it. Maybe something similar, but definitely there's different flavors. So how do you like become more aware of when you're triggered? Like how are you catching, um, catching yourself when you become triggered to then get that wider perspective um, and kind of step back and breathe? Well, the simplest thing is to notice what's showing up in your body. Like when you get really triggered and you're having a moment, where's it showing up in your body? Like for me, it was in my gut, kind of a knot, and it was constricting in my throat. It was kind of a cold feeling, right? And I can conjure it up right now. And so noticing when I got constriction in, the, in my throat, immediately I started recognizing, man, I'm triggered. I started noticing the symptoms that go along with me being triggered. I start noticing that I'm, I'm, I'm getting scattered. I'm about ready to snap. I'm, I'm getting angry, right? Um, so the first thing is body sensing. And if all you do is focus on the oxygen coming into your lungs and noticing your lungs filling with air, that's a way of jumping out of being triggered. But even better, like Yonel, if you could think about a moment where it was really precious and he was transformed as a man and as a veteran and looking into his daughter's eyes and really getting him associated with that. I'm like, well, where's that showing up in your body? It was all across his chest and it was nice and warm. Oh, interesting. So now we've discussed and discovered that when he gets really triggered, he his throat also tightened up. And he's got this sinking feeling in his gut. These are called clues, right? So your ability to notice and then shift the focus of your attention and notice where your body goes. Your body follows your thoughts. It follows your emotions and that chemical soup. I mean, that's right out of a, out of a Bruce Lipton is a cellular, cellular biologist. He wrote a book called The Biology of Belief. And then Joe Dispenza wrote Breaking the Habit of Being yourself. So this is really good information because it validates. That's where I learned this from. So I could actually apply it to myself. So you're literally changing your body chemistry. The instant Yonel thought of something more powerful than his trigger, his physiology followed. Yeah. Cause it's, 
it's one of those that I've often for myself and for other men, it's we're looking to almost validate or fortify our belief with the current situation. So, you know, like how you were talking about the critical mind saying, I'm not enough, you know, this isn't going to work out, you know, whatever the case may be, the message of the situation, it'll vary, but it's all hypercritical of ourselves. Um, very demeaning. Um, so in that it's, it's, it almost sounds like you're stepping back to disconnect yourself from the trigger and to be able to see things differently, not just mentally, but also physically feel a different, um, body posture, a different feeling, uh, like, I don't know how to, how to phrase it, but it's like, you're, you're stepping out of that porcupine suit almost into like the dog suit where it's just warm, fuzzy and comfortable, you know? Yeah. Is that correct? Does that make sense in that? Yeah. It makes a lot of sense because what we're talking about is noticing that you're noticing more often, not just being drug around by your triggers because life happens between our triggers. That's where your life actually happens. So when you, like when I would get triggered about somebody cutting me off in traffic, you know, um, you know, the Marine in me for hours later, uh, especially if they give me a dirty look or they give me a hand signal or something, you know, I could spend hours thinking about how I could drag them through their window or something. I could just have all kinds of bad thoughts, you know, um, but the more, the more quickly I noticed, like I'm triggered, the intensity and the, the depth and the length of the episode would collapse and it would begin to shorten up and being shallower. And so, A, I started noticing that I'm triggered more quickly and it went from hours down to minutes and then eventually down to nanoseconds. Like I know when I'm getting triggered and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not perfect. There are times when I can lose it just like anybody else. But I really tell people a lot, you know, I'm not here to teach this to you because I'm in it with you. Like teachers fall from the pedestals we put them on. So I, I don't want to be a teacher. I, I just want to be somebody who's doing my own work. If I can share something that's helpful, that's great. But every day I'm constantly getting pinged around and bounced around. But when you start recognizing you're triggered and you start noticing more quickly, the quality of, of your life improves because instead of being full-blown episodes, they become like little blips on a radar screen. And then pretty soon they become more manageable and then they become further and farther away from each other and you're getting triggered less and less. And that's where your life happens. Hi, Coach Mike here. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Living Fearless Today podcast. Man, if you're struggling with your worth, feeling you're not enough and playing small, honestly, this isn't your lot in life. There is more available to you beyond this podcast to help you uncover your worth, feel respected, be confident, and play bigger in all areas of your life. Grab a time at highcoachmike.com forward slash book a call to set up a complimentary session on where you're at today, who you want to be, and how you can live the life you've been desiring. Again, head on over to highcoachmike.com forward slash book a call and take that first step towards your life transformation.
How did you see like your family react as you started to become more self-aware and be, you know, cognizant of your triggers and then working through them? How did you see like your marriage change or relationship, you know, as a, as a dad, how did you see that change for you? Well, I had to go through a process. There's an old joke that there are none so righteous as the newly converted. Like I, I would learn this and I'd be like, man, I know what I'm doing. I, I'm not going to trigger like that anymore because I went to this seminar and I went through Tony Robbins and I did all this stuff and now I'm okay now. And they'd be like sitting back going, right. And then they'd wait for me to get really triggered and lose it. And they would go, see that, that program didn't really work. And they were waiting for me to just screw it up. And so I learned to make a quiet shift. I learned to not share what I'm learning, but be who I'm being. It's not what you're doing. It's how you're being that really made the biggest difference is I began to notice that I'm triggered. And I was around people who are conditioned to go, "Uh oh, here we go. And I was able to get a hold of the trigger and I was able to breathe and I was able to self-regulate for the most part. But instead of saying something about, hey, isn't this great? I would just change the subject. I'd nicely end the conversation. Hey, I got to go get anything else for me. And I would leave and I would leave them in a place of like, what just happened? He didn't get triggered. And I just wouldn't say anything about it. And by me making that quiet shift, they were able to reevaluate how they wanted to react and respond to me. So I think it's even better to not make a big deal out of it. Just be more affected, be more happy, be just a, a, this little shift into just sliding into like, what's more interesting right now? What can I do to be, what does this moment need right now? More than how can I tell people what I'm learning or I'm having a breakthrough. Everybody's got to notice it. Uh, so I think that's really my, 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 would be my answer is that the, the quiet moments where you're not making a big deal out of it, you get a lot of self-satisfaction there. So let's say with your wife, like you're having um, a conversation. I know she's got the happy extra gene, um, but you know, it, it's one of those of we're going to have conflict. And if you get triggered, would you say like, Hey honey, I need to step away. I mean, it's easier when it's like, Hey Mike, I know we're buddies. There's a problem here. I need to go. When you're living in the same house, it's uh, a lot harder to say, Hey, I got to go. How do you handle it in that kind of a thing where it's like, that's your, your wife. And it's an imperfect, it's an imperfect process, but I tell you what has helped me a lot Yeah, is just owning it, like owning it. I see it. Okay. Uh, I like, like when I've six, seven, seven years ago, eight years ago, like we were in a restaurant and I was in the Marine Corps. I didn't like being in crowded restaurants with a lot of guys around me bumping into me and elbowing me and stuff. And I get really triggered by that. And so we were in a place and she didn't know what was going on. But this guy kept on like bumping into me with his elbow and my side. And I, we were waiting for our table. And I said, I just whispered in her ear. I said, hey, I'm really triggered right now. I'm okay. But we just go ahead and go to the table and I'll be back in a minute. And I went outside and I just breathe. And I just, I just, I just, this is not happening. This guy's not being aggressive to me. And I just relaxed and I didn't make a big deal of it out of it. I went back in, I sat down and we had a really nice evening. 
because I wasn't thinking about he sat over there. What's his problem? You know, I mean, it just just kind of really got out of the way. So part of it is I just I just do my best to own what's going on and be honest about it. And and we bump into each other because she's got low conformity, just like me. We don't like to be told what to do. So if I wanted if I wanted to slow down, I just tell her, "Hey, hurry up!" And she laughs and she slows right down, right? And so we. But when I do trigger her inadvertently, which does happen, you know, I I kind of I do my best to diffuse it by saying something like, you know, do you think that I woke up this morning actually looking for ways to upset you? No. Well, I'm sorry that happened. I actually am. I'm thinking about how we, how I could have said it better. I'm sorry it happened, but I didn't wake up this morning just trying to get under your skin. And she thinks and reflects on it for a minute. And then we kind of, she gives me a little nod. Okay. And then we just work through it. And then we let it go. She doesn't beat me up about it. I don't beat her up about it. And that's the, that's the kind of grace that we give each other. So we don't hold on to things for too long. Like she's been mad at me for sure. Like stupid things that I do, but um, but, but for the most part, conversationally, when we're trying to get things done, <clears throat> you know, we can, we can bump into things from time to time. That makes sense. And that's, that's what I've found is being able to communicate with my wife and let her know, Hey, this is where I'm at is one of those that it's not so much showing a sign of weakness. It's just, Hey, this is where I'm at. And just so you're aware you know, and then if I need to remove myself or, you know, sometimes she's even run interference of, Hey, you know what? We don't need to, to be standing here waiting to be called upon. Let's go, you know, some, some other spot, you know? Um, so having a partner in it that knows what's going on is super powerful. Um, I did want to, to touch upon the fact of, uh, in your new book, like what was it that brought you to writing it and, you know, publishing it? Like what's, what's the driving motivation and the goal that you wanted to achieve by this, your new book? Well, I started writing therapeutically. Um, I mentioned to you before the, the ACEs scale, adverse childhood experiences scale. You know, and it's a 10 question um, survey that you can take. And it's about adverse childhood experiences and trauma and various types of trauma. And so uh, if you're a four out of 10, you're, the predispositions to diabetes and hypertension in later years is really high. And uh, drug addiction, alcoholism, depression, you know, is, is, uh, there's an increase in the prevalence. And if you're a six on a scale of one to 10, statistically, you're going to lose 20 years off your life because of stress and unresolved trauma. And, uh, and those risk factors go up exponentially. And when I took the, the survey, I was a 10 out of 10. And that really, that really got my attention because. Uh, I've, I've been working on personal development since just before I got in the Marine Corps 35 years ago. And so I've been working on resolving and excavating unresolved trauma. So I decided to start writing. Um, and I, I started having these little pieces of work that were scattered around 
keeping them in folders on my computer. And there was something really therapeutic about it. And then I remember my Aunt Glad talking to me about the Joseph Campbell's work, The Hero's Journey, and the arc of The Hero's Journey. And Joseph Campbell, he was he was like an ar- archaeologist, but he was uh, he was a writer, and he was dis- uh, discovering the, the the myths of civilizations and tribes throughout the world, and, and that they all carried a certain theme to them. And so uh, a, a documentary I'd recommend to anybody who's listening is called Finding Joe. It's a documentary called Finding Joe, which is Finding Joseph Campbell. It's funded by the Joseph Campbell Foundation. And it's this really easily relatable story about this mythic storyline and how Star Wars, you know, they they were able to use Joseph Campbell and the consulting to look at the arc of the hero's journey that Luke Skywalker took. And uh, and you look at every great movie, every great story, and it follows the monomyth, as Joseph Campbell called it. So I watched Joe, I watched Finding Joe, and one of the screenshots showed this really cool arc of the hero's journey. So I took the screenshot on my computer, I was watching it on my laptop, and then I went into PowerPoint, created these little uh, text snippets, and I started building my chronology, like my life of all the experiences I had and where they showed up in the arc of the hero's journey. And I noticed all the pieces of scattered material were speckled throughout the whole thing. And then I wrote my table of contents. And then I started getting more intentional. And I, I wrote all the easiest chapters first, saving the very, very worst to the very end. And I even wrote it under my great grand under my grandfather's name, so nobody would ever know that I wrote this. You know, because for some reason it, it helped me just be totally like transparent and uh and open and vulnerable about these terrible stories. And it's about the first 50% of the book are uh very, very bad, vivid experiences that I had to go through. But it starts the first chapter with my great aunt Gladys. Uh, and me as a little boy, she was a, a journalist in Canada who was the only war correspondent in Europe during the rise of fascism and the Nazi invasion of France and Paris. And then she evacuated with all the Parisians and all the different countries of refugees down to Bordeaux so she could catch a ship to England. She wrote a book about it. There's a segment on our documentary, like a history channel in Canada. And so I grew up with with glad coming down from ottawa she worked at the french embassy for 30 years so she'd come stay two months a year with my parents and my sister and brother and i and um i would get up every morning at 4 30 because i'd smell bacon because she would cook canadian bacon sharp cheddar cheese uh toast and coffee cream and maple syrup and my sister and brother never knew about this secret but i would be able to sit with glad for like two to three hours every morning and she would be provisioning me for this hero's journey in my life. And so I say this a lot, but because she said I was going to do something extraordinary with my life. And I believed her because she said it. It's that clear. Somebody of strong character, healthy adult telling you these kinds of things. And, um, and she also said that God, God is love and you'll, you'll figure this out someday and that you'll find your purpose. And so all these little provisioning conversations, 
were all in the back of my mind. And so uh, she's like the statue of David. You must chip away all that is not you to find your true self. So these little impressions, while I was going through life's difficulties, uh, I always kept asking myself, if God is love, why is this happening to me? And uh, so I did find God is love, and I did find my purpose in my 50s. Um, I'm 61 now. But it started as a therapeutic writing project, and it turned into this book. How is like your therapeutic writing different than you know like journaling because often we're told hey journaling is a great you know morning practice is there a difference or what's that look like well for me it is um because i have a very difficult time writing i i, I growing up i i, I had very dif- difficult time reading and doing math and my brain wouldn't make the relationship when i was trying to write something it would go from cursive to writing in, in the same words you know and it'd be really nervous and so uh but i can type 80 words a minute you know and so there's a different process going on for me and then what i would do is i would take this these hairballs and i'd cough them up you know about each chapter and i would do it in grammarly because it was kind of a cool experience of being an, a relatively uneducated person getting in there and scoring 100% on each chapter because I've been able to get it grammatically correct and the sentence structure correct. And I learned a lot about how to write. And I and when I got it up to 100% each chapter, I'd copy and paste it into a Word document. And so for me, every day when I looked at that chapter, every afternoon, every time I took a break, I would come back and I would start at the beginning of the chapter and I would just start over again. I just smooth it out and I'd smooth it out. And it's not a work of fiction. This is real life experiences. So I just wanted to tell a story. And, um, you know, so the therapeutic, therapeutic writing for me was uh, on a, on a, on a, on a word document, being able to, and, and, and grammarly being able to express myself and then let it sit and then coming back to it. And then getting the whole thing sectioned out into the chapters was really exciting. My first manuscript. And then it's just like a year of just arduous editing. You know, (laughs) my wife's a real needy reader. So she's like, so when you're standing there with your bare feet, what the grass feel like? Was it a windy day? Was it cloudy? I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to go back and I got to flavor this whole thing now. Right. It's so it's, it's, it's people, anybody who's written anything will understand what I'm talking about, but it's that getting it outside of your, your, your being Mm -hmm. can't be underestimated. Have you done journaling as as well? Is that like a separate thing or you're just like, nah, that doesn't work for you? I was always so self-conscious about my handwriting. I didn't write anybody letters. I still don't. Like I have a, a little printer and I'll I'll write a personal note, right? And then I'll sign it <laughs> because I just, it's just, uh, it's uncomfortable for me to have to write even mm-hmm. today. And um, so I have these little ways of being in the world where I can get I can get my message communicated. I, I write a lot of emails and I, I just really do a lot of, a lot of work, but I think each person has their own process. But even if I, I, I've said this before, but even if you just write a journal and burn it because you never want to see the light of day, then that's getting it out of you and you're coughing these things up and you're able to get it outside of your internal, you know, like your, our memories are like holograms. Mm-hmm. 
psychologically, somatically, physiologically. I mean, there's just so much wrapped up in these experiences. And when you start moving that energy and you start getting outside of it, you can look at it. There is, it's like the best therapy I've ever had because I'm processing my own stuff. I'm looking at it and I no longer have the visceral traumatic charge. Does it kind of, it still validates the reality of what you experienced, but it gives you a way to express it and detach from it. Is that a accurate way of putting it? Yeah. The way I put it for myself is bad things actually happened. Really bad things actually happened. Um, but that doesn't define who I am. I came into this world, a clean hard drive, and then everything happened to me. There's a book from Oprah Winfrey and a Dr. Bruce Perry, who's a child psychologist called What Happened to You, which I thought was a really great frame because instead of thinking something's wrong with me, what happened to me? How is that, that a different a, frame? Can you explain that a little bit more? Bad things happened to me. Didn't make me a bad person. Like I came into this world a clean hard drive and then everything happened. Okay. And so by the therapeutic writing process or just talking to a counselor or talking to somebody you care about, you're, you're expressing that what is unresolved into the world into, and you're, and you're, you're making meaning and purpose. So Victor Frankl's work, man, search for meaning. It's a powerful piece of work. He was a mental health professional who got taken away to the, you know, the concentration camps and his family was taken away. And he was stripped of all his clothes and he was told by the guards to give them his wedding ring. And he realized in that moment that the only thing he had control of was how he responded to his captors. And that one distinction helped him survive. And he wrote Man's Search for Meeting and kept the manuscript in the, in sewn into his jacket. And so it's the whole thing is about no matter what you've been through, there must be some aspect or meaning or purpose for your adversity. And it's up to us to, to discover what that is. So personal development for me and just having these references are so, they're just, they're just in my mind permanently. So you mentioned purpose a number of times. Was, was it something that you intentionally set out upon discovering your purpose like you did for self-help? Or is that kind of something that just evolved over time and came into being? Well, I, it happened to for me because of working so much with veterans and realizing what I was missing. Like when I got out of the Marine Corps, it took me six years to stop wearing camouflage utilities and wearing this big persona. And I, and I, and I finally, when I, when my son was out of the military, you know, it was about identity, mission, meaning, and purpose. It was like a flash of insight. When you're in the military, they give you an identity. I never had one. All of a sudden I had an identity. Every day they give me a, a mission, right? And I, and I had something to do, M meaning and purpose. Like in the Marine Corps, it's a unit, core, God, and country. Your unit first, the people you serve with, you know, then the Marine Corps, then your God, then your country. So this whole identity is galvanized into you. And so you have meaning and purpose associate, associated with this identity. And then when you get out, they don't do a very good job of telling you you're going to go through an identity crisis. So most veterans go through a, a terrible time because they, they can't fill up what's missing with drugs or alcohol or adrenaline or workaholism. So for me, 
it took me 20 years to figure that out. And then sitting with my son, trying to, trying to help him see what's going on. It crystallized, you know, that this identity crisis is something we all go through. Like in our lifetime, we're always go, preparing for going through or coming out of transition. Every, every one of us. So finding something that gives you meaning and purpose is what propels you toward a goal. It, prepare, it propels you towards who you're becoming. That's, I mean, that becomes like your foundation, like your, almost like your compass to figure out where to go. And I think so many of us, uh, particularly as men, whether it's coming from the core or, you know, military branch or even just, you know, corporate America, when we're separated from that role, that position, it, we've attached so much of who we are that identity, that image to it, that it's, you know, there is that struggle in the transition. What would you, um, what would you say? Like if, if, um, you know, I had been in a career and just stepped out of that identity, how can I set myself up to still have solid footing underneath me of who I truly am? Like what, what's a, a way that I can, still succeed in day-to-day without that identity of that position? I think the first thing is to recognize that's the void that you're experiencing. The first thing is recognizing that 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 is the, that's the, 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 there's something you just can't fill up with distractions. Okay. Once you recognize that's the void, then, I mean, people are genuinely goal-oriented when they start realizing that I am in transition. You have to let something go in order to go through this purgatory, this neutral spot, so you can have a new beginning. And there's a really, really great book called Transitions from William Bridges. And it explains this really well. You know, you're either preparing for, going through, or coming out of transitions. There's plenty of thought leaders out there that really do this, explain this really well. And so I would say for me and personal development, professional development, focus on who you're becoming, find anything that jumps off the shelf at you on Amazon, or if you have a bookstore, not many of those left, um, just spend some time just wandering around the self-help personal development section and find anything that catches your attention and focus on who you're becoming it, it it will work out very cool well john henry thank you very much for like walking us through you know purpose and having grace and taking accountability and being self-aware i mean those things are just pivotal pivotal <laughs> obviously i'm uh you know struggling to speak there a bit but uh <laughs> Those things are pivotal for us to, you know, continue to grow and uh, just keep, you know, improving. Uh, if you would, how can how can guys reach out, you know, follow you, get your book, um, just connect with you outside of the podcast? Well, go to harvestingwisdom.com. Harvestingwisdom.com. And that'll have access to my first audio book. And there's a couple of really, really cool, like, animated explainer videos 
that you can watch that a, the little hand growing the graphics and stuff. These are really, really, I think they're well done because I love the graphic, uh, the reality of it. And that'll help you understand the veterans work. But there's also another animated video about triggers and trauma, you know, managing the critical mind. Um, and the audio book is really for free. I mean, I mean, you can, you can right there on the website and it's more of a legacy project for my, for my son, which is a whole other story. But, uh, but you can listen to the first seven chapters or read the first seven chapters by going to harvestingwisdom.com of my new book, Be the Dawn of the Darkness, The Relentless Pursuit of Becoming Who We Are Meant to Be. So just click on that. If you just shoot me your email address, it'll ask you for that. And then it'll give you the, a PDF of the first seven chapters to read. Or you can listen to, I think, the first four chapters that is on Audible. And if you go to Amazon.com, you've got the Kindle, the audiobook, the hardbound, and the soft cover that are right there. And it, you know, it's launching this month. Very cool. I'm like, whatever format works best for you, it's there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, John Henry, thank you very much again, my friend. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate your patience and just allowing me to express all these thoughts and you know, it's a great, great conversation. Absolutely, my friend. Thank you. Thanks so much, my friend, for joining me on another episode. If you found the information within the show helpful, please leave a review on the platform you're listening to. It helps raise the show's visibility so other men can join us in breaking free. See you on the next episode. And remember to continue putting yourself out there. Have a great one.